Welcome to the broadcast. This is Michael Easley in Context. And before we begin talking with our guest, Cameron Doolittle, I want to read a couple of verses from the Gospel of Luke, starting in Luke chapter 5, verse 16, where we read, But Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. In chapter 6, verse 12, At this time he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called the disciples and chose 12 of them. And on through the Gospel of Luke, we have this pattern where Jesus gets away from the crowd. He pulls away to pray. A friend of mine actually did his thesis on those passages because it was so striking that here's the God of creation in human form, God-man, fully God, fully man, who found it not important but necessary to draw away to prayer. On the broadcast today, it's my uh, pleasure to have Cameron Doolittle. Cameron is one of the authors of a new book called Lead with Prayer by Ryan Scrooge, Peter Greer, and Cameron Doolittle. A longtime friend, Cameron is currently a senior advisor with the McClellan Foundation. He's the executive director of John Mark Comer's Practicing the Way and co-founder of the Generosity Path. He's previously served as an advisor to senators, congressmen, and senior executives of Fortune 500 companies through his consulting firm, since been acquired by Gartner. Cameron advises high-impact leaders and ministries around the world, and he and his family have been involved with a Bible Project, Desiring God Ministries with John Piper. On and on it goes. I'll stop there. But my favorite part about Cameron is I was a co-officiant to his wedding many years ago, and it was a privilege to be at that great event. So welcome to the broadcast, Cameron. It was a privilege for me to be at that great event, Michael, and it's maybe not just quite as exciting as getting married, but great to be back with you again here today. Absolutely. And greetings to your bride and family, of course. Hope y'all are doing well in Texas. Thank you. And Texas. Same, same to Cindy. You guys did our premarital counseling, and were so kind to welcome us into your living room multiple times and help us work through all of our issues premaritally. That was a minute ago, wasn't it? Boy. It was, it was a little bit. <laughs> well, we're talking about the new book, A Lead with Prayer. And as always, we have the information in the show notes. Always the softball question, why write a book? But more importantly, why write another book on prayer? Yeah. You know, Michael, as we were looking at our, our shelves, we realized we had a whole lot of books on prayer and a whole lot of books on leadership but no books on how leaders pray. So when you think about what do they actually do when it's time for prayer? And how do those of us that lead organizations, how should we be learning from them? And then as we looked out across the world and saw places where God is on the move in some powerful ways, and you're seeing all kinds of people come to know Jesus, I'd go and talk with the leaders of these movements and say, hey, what's going on here? And they would say, well, you know, we, we pray a lot. We have all these intercessors and I'd say, okay, that's cool. Yeah. And then and then what else? But like, what's the what's the actual secret sauce here? What's the actual formula that's that's making all this work? And they'd say, no, well, really, we, we really just pray a lot. And so it took me a while, but I finally figured out, wait, hold on, hold on. Maybe there's something to this. Maybe they're praying in a different way and with a different level of intensity and maybe duration than I am. And what can I learn from them about how they pray for their movement, for their ministry? And so that led to a, an odyssey with Ryan and Peter, whom I'm so privileged to be co-authoring this with, where we went out to different great leaders that we knew and said, hey, what's going on in your prayer life? Can you take us in? And so people like Tim Mackey and Francis Chan and Johnny Erickson Tata and a lot of great folks like that gave us this window into how they pray and how they lead their ministries in prayer. So it's not just their personal private prayer closet, but then also how do they set a tone of prayer across an organization? 
And so that was part of the genesis of it. Another provocative moment is I was sitting in Australia with this wonderful guy, David Smith, who's a, a major giver down there and has a foundation. And he said, you know, I, I used to be an accountant. And so I always want to ask every ministry that I give to, how are you handling your most important asset? Mm. And I, being, you know, being a little slow on the uptake, I said, what, what's their most important asset? He said, well, the God of the universe is waiting to be asked what they need so that he can respond in miraculous power. How are they stewarding that resource? What's their prayer strategy? And I thought, man, that's a question I've never yeah. thought to ask some of the ministries that I walk with uh, as we do our due diligence or whatever. And so all that led to partnering with these guys on this book. And we're just so privileged to be learning from global leaders and great leaders about how they pray. Well, when we first got the info about the book, and I, I scanned through some of the folks you talked to, and I saw Johnny Erickson Tata's name, I said, okay, we have to do the book. <laughs> been a longtime friend, and uh, I often comment, she's otherworldly, Absolutely. her book on prayer, and you, you reference that in your text as well, as well as just knowing her and what she endures and the people that come to her. I often say, we come with a hangnail talking to a person that has more complex suffering issues of anyone I've ever known, and God uses her in remarkable ways. And part of her life is prayer. She has a closed Facebook group called Johnny's Pain Pals, of which I'm one, and it's so rich with prayer. You almost It's like the William Sangster quote, when he heard Sangster pray, people would take off their shoes lest they see the face of God, because there is something about not to over-glamorize prayer, but there are all of us have men and women, I hope, in our lives that just astonish us with their approach to prayer. And yet, Cameron, when you talk about prayer, people are, yeah, I know I should. You know, I feel guilty. Prayer doesn't work. I prayed and God didn't answer. And you've encountered this just like I have. Yeah. Well, I love that you're mentioning Johnny Erickson Tata. I mean, the amount that we learned from her about praying through suffering, which is is not a discipline that those of us in the West especially enjoy or that we see as as a means of grace. I was talking to someone recently who said that he's a contemplative charismatic. And he said, you know, sometimes it's awesome when God shows up in these miraculous ways, but because I'm a contemplative, I also believe that he's going to show up through suffering. And in both cases, if I end up with a nearer walk with God as a result of that, aren't they equally miraculous as means of grace? And I thought, man, that is a, a window into suffering and mm. a way of thinking about suffering that I don't experience that much. And so, yeah, for many of us, there are places where the enemy has wanted to discourage us from walking with our Father, right? That posture of how do we come near to Him? And if, if it's not something that we enjoy, then let's ask. God to give us an outpouring of the Spirit to enjoy prayer again. Let's start asking questions of, of our dad in heaven and listening to what he wants to say back to us through the scriptures or through the thoughts and wisdom of people that he brings along our way. And so, man, if, if anyone's discouraged in prayer, I think the counsel of scripture and your counsel as well would be, let's try it again and ask, ask again, would he come and bring joy to us in that prayer so that it becomes just a, a delight. We've all been disappointed. We've all had things that we've prayed for not happen, but we have to believe that those revelation bowls are being filled with the prayers of the saints. And we don't know if that bowl is about to tip over and the thing's about to happen or if there's more filling to do, but either way, we believe that there's something that is going into that bowl when the, when the saints pray. 
when you started serving some of these leaders, I'm sure there were some, okay, I know that that's a basic spiritual discipline. What were some of the surprises or the big takeaways you said, you know, I've not thought of it that way. I've not thought of it in that perspective. I think the first thing that was surprising and and somewhat disappointing was the number of prominent Christian leaders who felt like, you know, they weren't just being humble. They felt like their prayer life was not one that they wanted to be willing to share and put on display. And you think, oh man, these are people that are leading, you know, big movements and names that we'd know. And if there's not the kind of walk with God that they'd be delighted to be letting others in, uh, kind of to use them as a model, then let that be a maybe a lesson for all of us. How do I start with me and have the kind of prayer life that I wouldn't mind answering some questions about? Not that I've got all the answers, not that you've got all the answers, but we want to be walking with God in ways, especially if we're leading an organization. Uh, the first thing is for us to get with God. And I think John Piper talks about his first thing every day is to get his soul happy in God so that he can do the rest of the work. One of our interviewees, David Denmark, is the head of a foundation called the McClellan Foundation. He was trying to start this whole movement of prayer. So, yeah, we got to get more prayer going and things. And he kind of sensed this subtle word from God when it, when it wasn't working out that well. God kind of nudged him and said, it's because you're trying to multiply by zero. You can't multiply prayer in others if you're not having the kind of prayer life that you would desire. And so that led to a lot of softness on David's part. And he started every day of his workday, just spending 30 minutes on his knees in front of a chair, just trying to be with God. And then out of that led to him bringing in his senior team for for more prayer so that he could start to inculcate a culture of it across his organization. Mm -hmm. And so we want to be these people that it starts with us. I think it was in Ian Bounds' Power Through Prayer and Purpose in Prayer, he told these stories. And I remember reading that Cameron and I was a young pastor just throwing my hands up going, you know, I don't even know how to pray. I forget, was it Tozer that would take off his suit and he got into a jumpsuit and he laid oh, prostrate on the floor. There was another guy, it may have been Sankstra, I mentioned earlier, I may have this wrong, but he was the one that wore grooves in the hardwood floor where he knelt yes. so often, you know, yeah, I'm yeah. like, okay, I'm just going to stop, you know? <laughs> yeah. I'll just go be, I mean, you know, get some real job instead of trying to be a pastor. That's right. <laughs> yeah. We all have this trade-off between prayer and productivity, right? Yeah. And we think, oh, the real production is, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah I'll do my prayer, kind of check the box. And then I'll get busy with the actual work of ministry, which is meeting with people and writing this and that. And you think, okay, well, hold on, hold on. Well, you know, what if the actual work of ministry is the work of prayer, both for us and for our leaders and for those that we walk with. And I think that's a, a challenge and encouragement to all of us. You mentioned Western Christianity, and I appreciate that because that's been one of my axes to grind over the years is we have this Americana view of the spiritual disciplines. And I do think when you get into so-called developing nations or nations that don't have the resources, they must pray when I was in Nigeria, when I was in Russia, when I was in the CIS and different places over the years, it's a very different spiritual discipline. And it's not, you know, I think the can-do spirit, the do, you know, the work ethic, all these things taken a little bit too far. I would also suggest, and you tell me from your leader interviews, discipline is hard for Westerners. We busy ourselves, but the spiritual disciplines are kind of like, you know, that's an afterthought. That's right. Yeah, we're so distracted and have so many stimuli coming at us. And you're right, in the developing world where there are fewer of those things, now the phones are coming and it's all starting to happen to, yeah. to them as well, distractibility and this great gift of technology that's kind of a double-edged sword that we've we've given the world. But you're right, there are rhythms that are slower and that allow more space for that. 
my pastor here in Texas, Jimmy Seibert, says, everybody wants a miracle, but nobody wants to need one. And in much of the developing world, uh, you're in a position where, man, if we don't pray, then it's not clear where our next meal is coming from. And that posture of prayer, that posture of needing to inquire of God and needing to ask of Him, put this in a whole different place. I think it's been one of the fascinating lessons of this book is we know that in many ways the church is on decline in the West, but in other places it's exploding around the world. So how can we humble ourselves as Western leaders and say, what can we learn from you guys? How are you walking with God in, in ways that can teach us and that can inspire us and hopefully renew the West as well as the rest of the world is being renewed? Let's talk about time because I think there's this, maybe it's not an accurate view, but we think we have to pray for you know hours a day. Mm-hmm. Luther, I think, was one who prayed for hours a day. I think I read once that he prayed something like four hours in the morning. I don't know if he did that all of his Christian life, but be that as it may, then it's overwhelming. The ACTS booklet we used to give out, the seven minutes with God was a way to start. I tried in seasons of my life, Cameron, to pray throughout the day as opposed to I got to pray for hours on a prayer list. And my shelf is lined with books, Joy and Strength, The Valley of Vision, a little book I wrote on prayer to help me pray personally. And Cindy and I have gone through this for years. I appreciated your bibliography. You had Ken Boa's book, which I think Handbook to Prayer is one of the best texts out there because we're teaching people to use Scripture to pray, not just a wish list that doesn't seem to get answered the way Mm -hmm you know, our mind works. So again, I prattled a little bit there, but give you a chance to respond to some of that. Yeah, the Ken Boa book is one that sits uh, right here on my shelf. That's part of my daily daily time with God. Because you're right, praying through the scripture lifts our eyes to him. And praying through the scripture is one of the practices that we found. It wasn't that many people that were praying as leaders who didn't have a whole lot of scripture. Sometimes they would use the scripture as the language of their prayer or the things that they were praying for They would go look for a scripture to tie to that request so that it was kind of powered by the scripture rather than just sitting there by itself. When it comes to time, I think there's someone who said that we need to be careful and let our words be few because he's up there and we don't, you know, we don't want to be like those that pray and make big shows of it. And so, yeah, does it take some time? Certainly, like any relationship, it takes some time. Does it mean that it's mostly a a math problem where if we just spend enough time, then that'll that'll do it. No, we, we found that there are people that do time-based prayer and then also trigger-based prayer. So what are those little things that you can plant into your day that, hey, every time we start a meeting, I want to lead that with prayer. Before mm-hmm. we came on here, Michael, you prayed for our time here together. And so there are these little triggers that we can set into our day. Of course, people pray at meals. And every time you're doing budgeting season or looking at your org chart, maybe that's a time that you can pray for the people that are on there. And so let's let's set those little triggers and little little mini prayer bombs to go off throughout the day that when we step on them, it's it's time for prayer. I have a great friend. He's been a friend for, I guess, 40 plus years now. We talk on the phone regularly. And if he or I are talking about anything, it comes up and I'll say something about, you know, I got a doctor's appointment next week. He'll just stop right then. Father, and it's impromptu, but it's genuine. And he's encouraged me over the 40-year friendship we've had and he'll say, will you pray for me? And when he says that, he means right now on the phone. Right now. Not yeah. when you hang up, <laughs> That's right. right now on the phone. That's right. And I remember in seminary being so convicted because you're supposed to pray as a seminarian, right? And I remember, will you pray about that? And I'm like, sure. I just lied, right? I'm not going to pray about it. I'm not going to remember. <laughs> right. Or if I write right. an email, I'll pray for you. I just lied. So it's stop right now. I say, Father, you're That's the right. God of the universe and you hear our prayer. I need help. Yeah. Howard Hendricks said, our 
dependence is not partial, but total. Amen. And I think we really miss it. I steer away from the contemplative and some of the mystical language, Cameron, because of my you know, fundamental evangelical Bible-rooted view. But therein, when you read the Psalms, to read and pause and think about what you just said, is that not what a good leader ought to be of? Yeah, amen. That's so right. I love that, that practice of when you think about prayer, why not make that a moment to pray? In the course of this, I would have people that would email back and say, you know, hey, I'll, I'll pray for your book. And then right there in the email, they would pray for the book. And you nice. go, okay, well, that there it is, right? So let's just do it right then. The Holy Spirit is right there with us. He's ready to receive the prayer as much now as later. But man, if we think that the most important thing we need to do is get on to the next email, then we're not going to stop to pause to pray either then or or later, most likely. And so I'm totally with you. What do you think are some of the helps that move people to understand a prayer life, whether it was these leaders or when you were talking to them, maybe infiltrating your own thinking? I think, as you're saying, Michael, the emphasis on Scripture in the beginning with frameworks like the ACTS, that's where a lot of people started was adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. And then Ken Boas added some layers to that. But those kinds of handholds to kind of help our, our spirit get going when we're not feeling it or not the, in the most emotive place or that kind of thing, those are so helpful. And I'd be interested to put it back to you. What are some ways that you pray? Or how can we get a window into your prayer life as leader, as someone that's led, led a lot of us over a lot of time? I often talk about seasons in my spiritual life where I feel, you know, super connected to the Lord and others where I'm admittedly apathetic, but I'm still in the discipline and the routines. You know, I've often said that if you're not in the word, God's word, God's spirit, God's people, you cannot grow. And I think the other fulcrum is pain and suffering. I think those are God's tools. It's not a very joyful way of talking about the spiritual life, but that's at least my worldview from a biblical framework. As Hendrick said, our need is total. It is desperate dependence, but we don't believe that. So when my life is going well, health, money, relationships, I don't need God. And that's there in the temptation. As a leader, I had to discipline myself to get up in the morning for years, I wrote prayers, and mm-hmm. I would often use the Psalter because I contend every emotion, every fear, frustration, joy, unknown, relational problem is in the Psalter. The Psalms have always been the texture for my prayer life, or another Psalm like where Paul writes in Ephesians or in Colossians or in Galatians, these little hymns we call them. Those to me are honey. When I'm discouraged or despondent, there are certain psalms I go to, Psalm 116, Psalm 101, Psalm 115 is a favorite of mine for different reasons. And I'm more of a melancholy person, so I'm attracted to the lament and Mm. to the petition and the unanswered prayer is a place, weirdly, that I'm comfortable, Cameron. So for me as a leader, it wasn't pray so God would fix or pray so God would answer but to pray because I have no answer, to pray because I see no outcome humanly possible. I'm very comfortable in a strange way with unanswered prayer, with trusting God, no matter the outcome, because I can't make it happen. For me, it was more not exemplary, not trying to be, you know, bowed up as a great leader, but that dependence on, Lord, I can do my best. I can do it as unto you. But if you don't make it happen, it doesn't matter. I say, do the right thing in the right way and go home. I Hmm. try to 
pray. I try to be in the word. I try to live the way I think Christ wants me to, but I can't fix outcomes. So I, the right thing, the right way and go home. And, and therein to me is faith. One of the prayers I've prayed for decades has been, I ask God not for a miracle, but I ask him for an immovable faith. Because if I get a miracle, I contend I'll need another one. I'll need another right. one. I'll right. need another one. But if I pray for an immovable faith, hmm. that I will trust him no matter what my experience tries to tell me, no matter what people do to me, that to me, I mean, I'm not saying that's universally true. For me, that's bedrock, Cameron. That is so good, Michael. Let me go back to you. Appreciate the little yeah. excursus yeah. there. But let's talk about the premise of the book, Leading with Prayer. That yeah. sounds to me like I'm watching someone pray so that I can follow him or her as they lead. Is that where we're going? We're really talking to leaders here, leaders of various types, pastors, ministry leaders, those leading in, in business contexts. We talked to some of those as well, because as people who were leading organizations, Peter, Ryan, and I were interested in, yes, the practices of how they love God individually, but then also where do you go from there? We found the same kind of concentric circles emerged in each organization that we talked to, each leader we talked to, where there's usually a couple people with whom they're praying pretty closely in their organizations, their senior leadership team, or a couple other pastors, a couple of elders, that kind of thing, that they are together setting a tone of not just opening a meeting in prayer, but really praying together for the people in the organization, for the needs of the organization, dedicating ideas, inquiring of God, what do you want us to do on, on this or on that matter that we're facing? And then it's out of that core unity of that group that a culture of prayer can spill out into the rest of the organization. In some cases, there are people, there are organizations that have paid intercessors whose job it is to be praying for the needs of the organization. And so when I was working with John Mark Comer to start practicing the way, we said, hey, we want this to be anchored in prayer from the beginning. And so we got a little group of people that we knew together, and we started just praying over Zoom to lay the foundations in that. And then as we started to have followers and and givers, we said, hey, we'd love to receive prayer requests from you guys. And so they would send them in, and we developed a little bit of technology even to gather those prayer requests and then to filter through them. Because sometimes, you know, you've led organizations, you get some crazy stuff that people ask you to pray for things that maybe you don't want to distribute to those prayer points to others. And so you filter those, and then you can send them out to the intercessors. And so that way, no one's getting, you know, 50 prayer points to pray through all these things for our organization, but everyone's getting just a handful of things that they can pray for and take to the Lord. And then the Echo Prayer app saw that, and they were willing to turn that into something that's available more broadly. And so if that kind of rhythm of prayer is something that people want to build into their organization, even with a little bit of tech, Echo for Ministries is now something that, so it's not just, the the book's not just doing, hey, here's a vision for prayer and here's some examples, but actually here's some tools for how you can Mm -hmm. take this to others. One of my co-authors, Ryan, wrote an exercise called Praying Through Your Org Chart. And so I've started now to write, you know, the names of people that I get to lead and their spouse's name or their kids' names and how I'm praying for them or what I think God might be doing in their life. And so I'm trying to be more intentional in making these things all just drenched in prayer and in the Spirit. And so it's been a a fun journey to be learning from people how they do it and to try to incorporate that into my own leadership. We've all been in prayer meetings, and we used to call them the organ recital, you know, because someone's got this problem and back surgery and, you know, cataracts. And I've always thought that was sort of, not to be indelicate, but sort of the easy way out. Mm-hmm. You know, I can pray for someone else's upcoming surgery or medical procedure as opposed to praying that, you know, God, I'm really having a problem forgiving this person. 
I'm really, you know, tempted by X, Y, or Z. I'm really angry yeah. at this. I'm insecure. I'm always anxious. I often talk about praying for things that only you and God will know if they're answered, mm. as opposed to praying for something that is sort of a checklist. Okay, we, we raised the money for the building. We did the project. We completed it on deadline. And leaders typically are, you know, they're get the job done. And the imperceptible part of prayer that we can't measure, Cameron, I'm curious how these leaders talked about that. So I guess two things. One, how do leaders keep from to-do lists? And what do you do with the, let's call low-hanging fruit of prayer? The You know, my friend who's got this problem, or I know someone yeah. going through a divorce. Those aren't unimportant, but they almost seem like softball as opposed to how am I really growing in my prayer life? Right. I think all of us have a list of people that we're praying for. And so I don't want to be too anti a list. Now, it's certainly sure. more than a list, but man, we sure want to be praying through. I want to pray for my wife, Carolyn, and each of my kids by name and be asking God, okay, what? how do you want me to be praying for them right now? I think that keeps us out of the, the organ recital that, <laughs> that you talked about. God, what's your desire for this this issue? You know, what's your desire for this? And how do you want us to pray for this? If there's some sense that he gives us, or sometimes the spirit will kind of prompt us with a different different direction than just, yeah, we got to meet the budget and those kinds of more mechanical things. And so I think that lends some some life to the process. And so I don't want to be anti-lists at all. One thing that struck me in reviewing the prayers of Paul, Michael, and you were awesome to refer to those earlier. You know, you see those in Ephesians 1 and so these different pastoral prayers. The number of times that he thanks God for his co-workers in the work of the gospel. Even sometimes when he's going to light them up on a few things that they need to get get right, <laughs> he starts by giving thanks for them. I found that a real challenge because you know, I can go to bed at night kind of thinking about, you know, someone on the team that's not quite getting it right and how am I going to correct this or change that or how am I going to manage this difficult situation? But the fact that by my count more than half of Paul's prayers that I can see are him giving thanks for mm. these people. And it's not that he didn't have some <laughs> some issues with them, but that challenged me to be grateful for these incredible men and women that God's put yeah. you know, around us and our boards and team and so on. I've always been struck by Romans, which we most consider the most doctrinally significant book in the New Testament. That chapter 16 is a list of names. Yeah. He prays for all of them and talks about their contribution to the church. It's always struck me, you know, these individuals to Paul were not just also Rands, you know, they were key in his, his leadership. You're right. So personal. It's so personal. When you have a book on prayer and the average person picks it up, he or she is going to have a myriad of responses. Another book on prayer. I don't pray well, as I mentioned earlier, prayer doesn't work. So what would you say to the person who's kind of like folding their mental arms going, you know, yeah. I know I should, <laughs> and I know these leaders probably do it, but I'm not quite there. Right. Yeah. One thing that should be freeing about this book is that, well, all the leaders that we talk to are people of prayer. They pray in different ways. Sometimes a book will come out and it's like, hey, you got to pray this way and you got to use these words and have this practice. And people should feel a real freedom here that by getting to look into the prayer closets of different people, they can say, wow, these are all people that have powerful, effective ministries doing all kinds of great stuff around the world. And yet, while they're all talking to our Heavenly Father, they're talking to Him in different ways. My co-authors and I work to have different practices and different aids and tools. My co-author, Ryan, even created kind of a deck of cards. He says, you know, I'm a little ADD. And so if I can flip through a deck of cards, here's a scripture about 
loving the poor. And now let me pray for the poor in my community. And by flipping through, he can keep himself focused. He's, he said he found himself praying longer and more than he than he used to. I've, through this experience, started taking my app and setting it up on the on the treadmill. And you know, so as I'm running, it's sliding through these different prayer cards. And you know, it takes your mind off of the pain of how many miles you, you've run or whatever. <laughs> and it, it keeps our minds focused on things above, even as we're doing that. So there's all kinds of different practices like that. And my hope is not that everyone emulates everything that all these leaders are doing. I think that'd be impossible. But man, if there's one or two things that you find that give you a different prompt, or that's a different window into this, or I could try that. But if you're not enjoying your prayer life, I think one of the things we found is that these are people that love to be with God. And so Mm. if you're not enjoying it right now, then try the book and look for one or two things. Ask God to show you one or two things that maybe could bring more joy to that conversation that you get to have with your Heavenly Father. You know, when I'm thinking back on prayer meetings, but not like a Wednesday night meeting, but when we would, maybe the pastors met or the elders met, I would try, not always successfully, to say, pray for these intangibles, not the tangible. You know, don't pray for, it's not that we don't care about the prayer list of people that are sick and hospitalized, because in large churches, you always have, I mean, hundreds sometimes of people that are in really difficult situations. But to pray for the imperceptible, it's hard for most leaders, because leaders are wired to affect Mm -hmm. change, to get things done, to be the torchbearer of vision, to correct. Maybe they're, you know, they're financially wired and they're always thinking about the bottom line and being effective. And these are all important things. So for a leader to stop and pray for something, it's it's kind of a, a mind bender, Cameron, that, that these yeah. leaders view prayer as important to the ministry or the mission they have. I'm going to miss who has the quote, but someone said that a good process is a good outcome. So those of us that are very outcome focused, but man, if we can get to a good prayer process where we have demonstrated and modeled to those that God puts in our care to lead, that these are not fundamentally human decisions, that this is fundamentally a supernatural game that we're playing and that we're part of, then you're right. Like Whether the results happen or don't, we've at least got the right process, and now it's back with God. I was really challenged. There's the verse that we lead the book with is from Jeremiah 10, where he says, the shepherds are senseless and do not inquire of the Lord. And so they don't prosper and all their flock is scattered. And our whole job in that verse is just to inquire of the Lord. And so we want to be people that are that are about that. There's another passage from Samuel that hit us between the eyes as we were doing the work for this. Samuel says, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. And man, I don't want to sin against the Lord by failing to pray for those that He has entrusted mm-hmm. to my care, for the things that He's put. So if I'm asking Him, God, how do you want me to pray? And He highlights a few ideas or a few things that I should be praying for. I sure want to lean into those and not sin by failing to pray for those. You also touch on what I call posture in prayer. You talk about kneeling. What did you learn from some leaders about where they kneel or lay on the floor? Or we don't want to turn that into a religious, like a magic lamp. But what did you hear? Yeah, that was a surprise and almost a mistake in our book. As we were co-authoring it, we were talking about the posture. We went more kind of a posture in a metaphorical sense. And so then one of our researchers went through and found all the different things that our interviewees had said about how they kneel or how they even lie prostrate and things. We said, okay, wait, wait. Okay, this is an accident. Let's kind of trust that this is a holy accident. What did they say about postures? Because we weren't thinking about actual physical posture. We kind of thought heart posture. And as we went through, the number of people that 
will say, you know, before I get out of bed in the morning, I want to say the Lord's Prayer and just start, just get my heart going in that direction. Mm-hmm. That was Dallas Willard. Other people would roll out of bed and hit their knees first to commit the day to the Lord. And then in their times with them, a surprising number of people would take a, a posture of raising their hands, of going on prayer walks was another another way that they're keep engaging their body in the process of prayer. And then, well, it's a little bit different from a posture, fasting was another thing that mm-hmm. came up quite often. And so we need to recognize that we're more than a, a brain on a stick, that God puts us in bodies, and that there are things that the scripture is talking about. I think we've got Psalms where the psalmist is in all kinds of different postures. And yet my temptation, Michael, maybe like yours, is to sit in my chair here and read about David in all these postures right. and say, oh, it's good, good for him, right? But man, there is something uncomfortable and a bit focusing about getting yeah. up and getting my 47-year-old knees on the ground and <laughs> seeing if that doesn't put me in a little bit different juxtaposition with God or position with God. We do see kneeling throughout Scripture. We're always afraid of religiosity, sure. Uh, or as Jesus condemned the meaningless repetition that they think they'll be heard That's right. by saying the same thing over and over. Which you know, when you think about how we pray, which is why I appreciate what Ken Boa did because we're praying Scripture. He did such a phenomenal job organizing that text. You're right. The affirmations, the ten affirmations in the morning. I had some friends last year, actually, that I said, let's just pray the affirmations for 90 days straight. Hmm. Because I would always get stuck on certain ones and go, gosh, I'll never get this right, Lord. And it was, okay, what's my purpose? And to pray specifically, you know, if you're a mom with kids, you know, on your knees, if you're a young business person with, you know, all the fears of employment and, you know, taxes, et cetera, you're scattered. And to stop and say, pray specifically for X, Y, Z, and getting on your knees is sort of clarifying. I've been to one Protestant church, Cameron, that had kneelers. Oh, interesting. Yeah. First Baptist of Dallas under W.A. Criswell. It blew my mind because I was raised Catholic, of course, and not to be indelicate, but we had a lot of meaningless repetition as Catholics. So to have a kneeler was sort of like, oh, brother. And I remember mm-hmm. going there one time being blown away that they had kneelers in a Protestant <laughs> church. And it was like, hey, we're going to stop and kneel before the Lord, the, our God, our maker, mm-hmm. and humble ourselves. And even to lie prostrate sometimes. And again, there's sort of, I think you use the word, it's clarifying, I guess. You know, it's like, okay, I need to stop and really focus my mind and body on what I'm doing. Not to make it a religious Yeah. You know, I'm I'm better than or more important when, but it's I guess I'll use the word clarifying. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And there are things from from traditions that we have parted ways with, and sometimes in the throwing out of things, there's a little bit of baby that might go out with, sure. with the bathwater. And so if there are some some practices that in a non legalistic way we can weave back in that the saints who have gone before us have found helpful, then why not? As long as we know that where our real salvation comes from and how we're justified and all of that, there's some practices there that can be helpful and can speak to people. You know, back to your opening explanation about leadership books and prayer books. What is it about leaders in general? And this may be like the most obtuse question you've have been asked. Why are we captivated by leaders and their lives? Oh, it's that's so interesting. Well, I think aren't we in such a celebrity culture, right? Where we're we're kind of looking up 
it's fine to look up, but we're just not looking far enough up, right? Fix our eyes on Jesus, the author mm-hmm. and perfecter of our faith. Uh, I think we're all designed to, to worship. And then we look around going, okay, well, who do we worship? And so we start looking for, well, who's as high up as I can, as I can see. And so we look to people that are at the top of the, the political mountain or the business mountain or the, the music mountain or whatever the, the mountain is. Yeah. And so I think it's, right that there are some people that we should be looking up to we need to have people in our lives but how do we pick them and what do we want to learn from them might be the key questions i think leadership is god's provision for people he's often putting someone in charge he puts elders in charge you know he puts pastors in charge and so on shepherds to lead the flock both the animals and then us as individuals and so for us to be looking to our leaders like hebrews talks about and and imitating their faith is a good thing so let's look to those leaders but let's make sure that we're looking to leaders that are leading in ways that honor God. Mm-hmm. When we were in Dallas, we attended a church that had a small group of elders, and one of them, and Dr. Alan Hull. Dr. Hull was one of the few men that when I ran into him, and we actually, a certain part of our life, would meet in airports. We'd run into each other at the airport going one place to another. What is this? You know, I'd say, Dr. Yeah. Hull. We would stop and talk for a minute, and he would say, I've been praying for you about such and such, which is something he'd asked me months before. Come on. And I, A, I forgot that I'd asked him, Cameron. B, I was blown away that he remembered. Yes. Not that long ago, same kind of exchange, talking to him. And he brought up, I've been praying for a specific thing that I had asked him. And I was just blown away that here's this guy that he was a leader in his field, but he was a spiritual leader to me. And someone I esteemed and looked up to as a mentor and an elder and a remarkable man of God. And I thought, he remembered to pray for little old me? And that's one of the examples that is imprinted on me and how, you know, all my mentors were very kind to pray for this guy. And then I turn it around. And now that I'm that old guy (laughs) going, you know, whom am I praying for? And so back to the thesis of your book. I think as leaders, wherever we have a sphere of influence, there are a handful of, you know, six, seven people that really lean into who we are. They watch what we do and say. And when you and I take time to say, I'm praying for you, it rocks their world that a leader cares about them. Totally. Totally. As we think about shepherd leadership and servant leadership, I mean, the fact that he remembered your prayer request, Michael, you knew that he was actually doing it. He hadn't just done his flashcards and kind of filed away, okay, I'm going to impress Michael by, by bringing this out next time. That meant that it was on his his list somewhere, and yeah. he was working through it and praying for you. What a legacy of leadership that we might get to pass on by being those kinds of people that care enough about our people to ask them for how we can pray for them, and then mm-hmm. to pray with them, and to open meetings with that, and to check in. I mean, that's that's got to be the heart of of shepherding, listening to people, and then loving them, and taking our time to do that. It's so amazing. It's somewhat of a, a lost art and discipline, but I still write a lot of hand notes. I bought some kind of fun fountain pens and I, I have a little card stock that I write hand notes on. And I'm sure you've encountered this too. The number of people that they'll say, I've got that note in my Bible. I had a friend years ago going through a, a terrible time and I was happened to be on vacation, thought about him in my devotions, wrote a little note. And if I run into him today, he would probably have his Bible and he'd show me the note and where he'd stuck it in the Bible to the references that I had. He goes, you'll never know what this meant to Mm. me. And and that's something that's functionally for me, it makes me stop, write out the prayer, write out a few verses, thinking about you. 
put it in the mail. It's a physical thing they get in an email and text world. For a leader to carry a stack of little cards and send them out is a powerful tool. Totally, especially in our digital world. I mean, what a, you know, everything has just gone so quickly. And for them to have something tactile that they can hold on to, an adjacent practice I I heard and have experienced some is people praying into voice note and then texting you what they actually prayed for you. And man, it's one thing to have someone say, hey, I prayed for you. It's another thing to hear them on tape, hear your voice. Man, I just feel so cared for when that happens to me. And so I've tried to start doing that to others to some extent. Excellent. Final thoughts on Lead with Prayer, and we'll let folks know they can pick up this book anywhere books are sold online. We'll have, as always, in the show notes, the information if you missed it, if you're listening in your car or on your workout or if you're watching on YouTube, but we'll have the information in the show notes. But final thoughts, Cameron? Yeah, I would just point people toward the website, leadwithprayer.com. They can go on there and check out. There's a little assessment of, hey, how am I doing? And Are there places that I can grow in my, in my prayer? I think we all have those. And let's really start with us as leaders. Let's begin with our own prayer lives, our own walk with God, and trust that He will partner with us to grow that into something that will be something that others that we lead will want to emulate. And so it's been transformative for me to get to learn from so many people out there. Hopefully, I'm a little farther down the track now than when we started writing the book. And hopefully, there's a a gift here that we're giving to other leaders as well, that we can all be part of a, a movement where our prayer lives will be used by God to bring us closer to Him and to bring others closer to Him as well. Cameron Doolittle, one of the co-authors of Lead with Prayer, and as he mentioned, the website, and also we'll have that in the show notes as well. Thanks for your time, brother, and encouraged by what you're doing and how God is using you. Michael, thank you for your life and leadership and for your prayers for us back in the day. We're so grateful. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonamorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.